Well, man, I don't know about you, but I've really loved the series. Uh, so far, we're only three parts into the 10. We're working our way from the bottom to the top. And I've loved making our way through this new series on the 10 Commandments called The 10. And a couple of weeks ago, Darcy started us off brilliantly with a message on Do Not Cover. And if you were here last week, Shemaine Gibson brought an incredibly insightful and well-researched message on how to not give false testimony against our neighbor. And our hope in the series is you don't just see this as a big list of 10, don't you even think about it rules, or a big list of don'ts, but rather a clear depiction on God's heart for His people. Now, there are three different types of laws in the Bible, and among these three categories, we get 613 different laws. And the common question that crops up out of that, because that's a lot of laws, is what ones does God expect us to uphold and obey today? See, we have judicial laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. And just for the next couple of minutes, I want us to touch base on that, because our understanding of that will change the way that we view the ten. Judicial laws were for the people that lived in the land at that time. Uh, Our modern day equivalent would be things like don't exceed 100 kilometers on the motorway, pay taxes on what you earn. We are not bound by these judicial laws as we are not living in that land at that time. In the same way, us here in New Zealand are not bound by the judicial laws of Australia. Ceremonial laws served a really important purpose. They were designed to foreshadow and point towards the coming of the Messiah. It was prophesied about, they had read about it, it was in Scripture. It was foreshadowing that and preparing people's hearts for that eventuality. They were designed to set God's people apart as a holy nation. And the name literally translates to custom of the nation. And so they were specifically for Israelite people. They included things like animal blood sacrifices, circumcision of males, and redemption of the firstborn. All the fun ones. Christians today are no longer bound by these laws because the church is not the nation of Israel. Jesus has already come to fulfill the purpose. He is the Messiah that they were pointing towards. And so now they're not necessary. That doesn't mean they lose their value. Doesn't mean there isn't value in them guiding us and leading us, but we're not strictly bound by them anymore. And then finally, we get to moral law. And these are based on God's holy nature. And so as such, they are holy, just, and unchanging themselves. Their purpose is to promote welfare among those who obey. Moral laws are seen as valuable by common sense. Like you look at these and you probably don't have an immediate defense against any of them. They they seem like they make sense based on some common sense. But they include regulations on justice, respect, sexual conduct, and include the Ten Commandments. So moral law is actually wider than the Ten Commandments, but they are inclusive of the Ten. And so when we look at the Ten Commandments, we have to understand that these aren't just good ideas for people, but they're actually a reflection of the very nature of God. If people are willing to live by the Ten, we'd be living in harmony, in unity, and in the likeness of God Himself. It's no surprise then that the Ten are often a foundation for most judicial law systems around the world. To live in accordance with the Ten isn't to be someone who's just following the the rules and being obedient, is actually to be living out the life that God created us for. This was God's idea for community and society. It's the blueprint for a united, civil, loving, and productive civilization. And so we can see that it's when societies begin to compromise on these things that society begins to erode. People begin to lose their way. Selfishness and pride set in. Harm and hurt are regular occurrences. And most tragically, people begin to feel distance from God and others. Now I say all of that to say this, these 10 aren't just rules to help us get along and be friends, but they are part of God's design for us. Our souls cry out for this type of living. This is the greatest way you could possibly live your life. And so part three in our series leads us to you shall not steal. Every time I read you shall not, you better believe, I just want to be like, you shall not pass. But 
not today, you can pass, but you shall not steal. Now the story goes that there were two young mischievous boys, one was eight and one was 10, and their mother knew that if any mischief went down in their town, she was convinced her boys probably had something to do with it. But she heard that the local pastor was really good at correcting and training children, so she asked him, would you have a chat with my boys? He agreed, but on one condition, I'll do it as long as I can see them one at a time. Well, of course she agreed. She sent the eight-year-old boy that following morning with the plan to send the older boy later that afternoon. There the eight-year-old is sitting in front of this pastor in his office who was a big burly man with a loud voice, much like myself. And the pastor asked the young man, where is God? The eight-year-old's jaw drops. He can't believe what he's hearing, but he can't muster a response. So the pastor tries again, this time a little louder, a little bit more authority. Where is God? Again, he's, he's shocked. He can't produce a response. And so finally, the pastor tries one more time, as loud as he can, with more gusto and with more authority. Where is God? The boy screams. He jumps up and he bolts for the door. He runs all the way home, dives into his closet and closes the door behind him. He's bawling his eyes out. He's clearly upset. His older brother comes and discovers him a few moments later. He can see that his younger brother's upset. And he says, what's the problem? What's wrong? Gasping for breath, the little eight-year-old finally brings a response. He says, we're in big trouble. God's gone missing and they think we did it. <laughs> Exodus 20:15. you shall not steal. The dictionary definition of steal is to take from someone dishonestly, or to obtain secretly. Now, most of us would not look in the mirror and go, you're a thief. But how many of us have borrowed something that we just simply never returned? How many of us have used the statement, well, God helps those who help themselves? Stealing, otherwise known in South Auckland as the five-finger discount. <laughs> you see, one of the challenges with stealing that often differs from the rest that we see on here is that there are varying degrees of it. Like it's a lot different, right, when you accidentally steal a pen from a receptionist's office compared to robbing a bank. Like you can't commit like a little bit of murder and it not be so bad. You can't do unserious forms of adultery. You can't just casually worship a little idol but not get into the big stuff. Stealing seems to be less severe than others. Like after all, it's just material items, right? There's no way that's as bad as murdering someone or being unfaithful with your spouse, or worshiping a statue in place of God, and yet God saw it necessary of all the things that could be included to include that in the Ten Commandments. And I want to suggest this morning, it's because the outcomes of stealing go far beyond the unlawful distribution of resources. Stealing results in hurt, in resentment, discouragement, broken trust, and fractured unity among people. Stealing an item robs us of trusting community and it stifles generosity. But with stealing, it can be so easy to justify it. We talk ourselves out of the times that we've stolen. Ah, it's not so big. It's not so serious. It doesn't really matter. We try to justify it in our own mind. I don't know if you remember, if you're old enough to remember, uh, before movies, there was this old school clip that used to play. And it would warn you that downloading content illegally was, in fact, against the law. Well, uh, you're going to be real blessed. We're going to watch it right now. Let's check it out. <laughs>
How good is that? That's amazing. I love everything about that. How thick the computer was, the font that was used. The, the quality of the video is not bad because it's on a big screen. It's literally like state-of-the-art quality for the day that it was delivered. I love that video because as ridiculous as it is, and if you remember it, you're having a good laugh. But what's it saying? It's essentially saying, hey, look, in these contexts, you wouldn't steal. Like, you know that's wrong. You wouldn't steal a car. You wouldn't steal a handbag. You, you wouldn't do that. You know it's wrong, and you're better than that. So if you wouldn't justify it in that context, don't justify it in a different one. Just because something is small, it doesn't mean it's okay. Look, if we're to be honest, we've all stolen something. In fact, some of us continue to steal today, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. How many ballpoint pens have you found in your car or your handbag? And you're like, I definitely didn't buy this, but I have it. And I'm not sure how that came about. Now, pretty much all of us would say that we wouldn't steal an entire ream of paper from the office that we work in, but we might sneakily print off a few personal documents here and there. Maybe if you found $100 on the ground, you might hand it into the police in the hopes that the rightful owner was found. But if you found $2 on the ground, you'd just be like, ah, oh, just justify it as a blessing. Now, look, I'm preaching to myself. I've found $2 on the ground and gone, dah, there's just no way. There's no way we can find the rightful owner. So I put it in my pocket and I count it as a blessing. When we're paying for our groceries and you notice, oh, I've been given a bit too much change than I should have, or I noticed that item wasn't scanned and added to the total, do we just convince ourselves it's a blessing from God? Or instead, do we say something? Do we speak up and decide to be a people that are willing to do the right thing, even if we could get away doing the wrong thing? Most of us wouldn't dream of slipping a DVD case under our jacket at JB Hi-Fi and sidestepping the security guard as he's distracted, and yet are there websites and special links and illegal VPN services that allow us to watch things that we should be paying for. But rather than this morning harping on and on and on about the obvious challenge here to not take other people's items, we have to understand that the effects of stealing run far deeper than that, not only for us, but for our community. You might say, well, that's nitpicking, Frosty, like that's a bit pedantic. But Galatians tells us that it's even a small amount of yeast that ruins the whole batch of dough. Now that's talking about false teaching, but the principle applies. If we believe incorrectly about something, even if it's small, it can corrupt us on a much larger scale. And remember that the commandment to not steal isn't just about you and the life that you're living. It's actually part of the foundation of the society that God has asked us to build, a society based on principles that reflect His very character. And so for the minutes that we've got left, what I want us to do, a couple of things. Firstly, I want us to unpack why God would consider stealing so abhorrent that he would include it in the Ten Commandments alongside things like committing adultery and murder. Is that cool? Two, two reasons, two uh, consequences that stealing can result in. The first one is this. Um, it's in your notes, and we'll bring it up on the screen as well. Number one, it fractures our relationships. All human relationships are built of trust. Trust is the cornerstone of any healthy relationship you have in your life. But also, we all come with a past. We all come with shortcomings, weaknesses, and worries. And to trust someone is to believe that they would act well towards you in your moment of vulnerability. That someone would consider your needs and act out of love and generosity towards you. I know for a fact, if I need Darcy to be present, she's going to be there. I know if she's talking about me to someone else when I'm not there, I know it's going to be honoring. I know if I'm feeling weak, Darcy's not going to take advantage of that for her own gain. If she knows the last cookie in the packet is mine, in Jesus' name, she will not touch it. In fact, she will not even covet it. She may even deliver it to me. Uh, I've seen it in the Bible. God commanded the ravens and they brought food to the man of God. So who knows? If a raven can do it, maybe a wife might do it as well. <laughs> God's justice against stealing is so severe. Why? Because it destroys trust. It fractures relationships and it causes division among people. 
Stealing treats the accumulation of an item as more important than the honoring of a person. If you think about it, stealing treats the accumulation of an item as more important than the honoring of a person. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we discovered here at church, um, at some point over that weekend, it wasn't a Sunday, it was a Friday or a Saturday, someone had made their way into our youth room and had stolen the PlayStation. We are currently PlayStationless. Now, I've checked the camera footage and we can't see too much, but can I tell you what my immediate response was? In our Tuesday staff meeting, we had our team gather in and I reminded them, hey, guys, let's make sure we're locking the doors. Uh, We need to lock the doors, shut up shop. We need to make sure that no one we don't know is in the room. We don't even want them in the room with us. We became guarded, cautious, skeptical, and more closed off, right? Because someone had dishonored us. Someone had disrespected us and came in and taken advantage of us. And often our natural response is to protect ourselves to make sure that doesn't happen again. And this is exactly what happens to every person in our community that becomes the victim of theft. I do it. If I've been stolen from, which I have in the past, I find that I tighten my grip a little stronger. We become skeptical of others and less sensitive to their needs. When we steal, what we create in other people is inward-focused hearts that change the nature of our human relationships. It causes people to focus more on their own needs and their own lack rather than the needs of others around us. So when God is commanding us not to steal, it's far less about the items and far more about the condition of our heart. It's about putting a safeguard in place in order to uphold unity and harmony among people. When commanded not to steal, the main reason is because that's what God is like. If God is like this, then we should be like this. He is generous. He is honoring. He is trustworthy and he's just. Come on, Christians should be the sort of people that make deposits into other people's lives rather than withdrawals. We should be the sort of people when we're around others, we invite them to be open and vulnerable in a way that they can feel safe. That honoring and respecting people is the way to live a God-honoring life. That is often the consequence of stealing. It fractures our relationships. The second consequence that can come about is this one. It misrepresents God. Let's read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, from verse 17. It'll be up on the screen and, of course, in your notes as well. It says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to Himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to Him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making His appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. There is just no possible way we can be effective as ambassadors when we plead to people, come back to God, if we're not living a godly lifestyle ourselves. To disobey these commandments is to misalign ourselves with the nature of God. These aren't about behavior modification. They're about identity alignment. To be like this is to be like God. You know, I love in Exodus 20 is when we first read the Ten Commandments that we have here. But in Leviticus 19, it revisits them and it lists them again. But this time in Leviticus, it starts out in verse 2 by mentioning something really important. It says this, it says, Give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then it lists the Ten Commandments. He's essentially saying, if I am like this, you should be like this too. I don't know about you. But I'm so thankful that we serve a God that was gracious enough to make it clear for us. That He would give us a list of 10 things that we could live our life by in order to live the life that we were designed to live. He wasn't confusing. 
He wasn't cryptic. It wasn't all like smoke and mirrors. He's making it clear that if we live like this, we are most of the way there to loving God and loving people. And Jesus even simplified it even further just for dumb people like me to really be able to process it. He took all 613 and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart or your mind or your soul and all your strength. And the second, just as important, love your neighbor as yourself. No one here likes to be stolen from. And so to hold back from any form of stealing is to love our neighbor as ourself. I find John 10, 10 fascinating. You might've heard it. I'll read it to you. It says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. This is phenomenal. Jesus could have given any name to the devil right here. He could have said the murderer comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He could have said the destroyer comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus identifies him as the thief. He says, it is the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Being a thief and stealing is far more resembling of the enemy than it is of God. And what an amazing opportunity you and I get to represent the God of heaven in our workplaces, in our sports teams, in the community clubs that we're a part of. When we go to the shopping center, we get to represent the God of heaven by the way that we choose to live. And when we don't, it misrepresents God. It fractures our relationships and it misrepresents God. But we've all been there. Right? Like I'm not up here acting all high and mighty like I'm absent from this. We have all stolen something small and justified it to not be that bad. In fact, some of us talk ourselves into thinking it was the noble thing to do. Like I might download this thing that I know I shouldn't, and I'm going to send it to someone who can't afford it so that they can have it. And we convince ourselves we are like Robin Hood, to steal from the rich and give to the poor. But the Bible is clear, although earthly consequences can vary depending on the severity of the stealing that we do, the Bible's clear that sin is sin. Sin is sin, and it creates a divide between us and God and robs us of the life that God has called us to live. Come on, maybe there's something in your house that you borrowed, but the owner just didn't ask for it back, so it's kind of still in your house. Maybe you've been sneaking that free printing at work, but you know it's against company policy. Maybe someone offloaded something to you at some point, and you're pretty sure it was stolen, but like you didn't steal it, but you know you shouldn't rightfully have it. Maybe there's a frequently used website or streaming service that illegally gives you access to movies and content that you get to watch that actually someone deserves to be paid for. Look, if someone has worked really hard and sacrificed a great deal to build a company that makes them a lot of money, they deserve to have a lot of money. It's no less serious to steal from people who have a lot. But what do we do? Because we can't unwind the past. We can't go back and change what's happened. We may be here. And look, I'm going to make a, a statement. It's fair to say we've all stolen. I can't often make a blanket statement to say we've all, but we've probably all stolen at some point, one way or another. But how do we move forward from that? How do we hear God's word? How do we respond? And how do we move forward? Well, I do have just two thoughts for you this morning. The first one is this. We absolutely have to make it right. Make it right. Martin Luther King said the time is always right to do what is right. I love the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Uh, Zacchaeus is the short guy. He's a chief tax collector. And it was well known in those days that tax collectors would swindle people out of their money by charging too much tax. Sounds familiar. And they would keep the rest of the tax and put it in their pocket. It was intentional. It was dishonest. I mean, let's be honest. Zacchaeus probably like 
justified it in his own mind as being the right thing to do. He hears that Jesus is coming through his town and he wants to position himself to have a moment with this Jesus he's heard so much about. So he pushes through the crowd, he runs through, he climbs up a sycamore fig tree and he sees Jesus and Jesus sees him. They lock eyes, it's quite the moment. Jesus calls him down out of the tree and invites himself to Zacchaeus' home to be a guest. They spend some time together and it obviously transforms Zacchaeus' heart. Let's read Luke 19 from verse 8. It says, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, he did, I will give them back four times as much. He obviously had a lot of money that he had swindled in order to pay back people four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. So as Jesus says this, He's talking about Zacchaeus and he's like, this guy's lost. He was lost at least. He'd lost his way and he was living a life that wasn't what was designed for him. And it was after encountering God that his heart was turned, but his response wasn't just spiritual. It was also practical. There was like Zacchaeus' pre-Jesus days and he's entering into his post-Jesus days. Like for us, the BC version of you, the before Christ version of you, may have been quite okay stealing things, justifying it, sneaking it in, whatever. Like it's, it's a dog-eat-dog world. I've got to make a way for myself. But the AD version of you certainly shouldn't be stealing because God wouldn't do that. That's not his nature. And as Christians, we're to be Christ-like. And, and this is how we're Christ-like. He, Zacchaeus returned to people what was stolen, but with extra on top. And my challenge for us this morning is to take action in the week ahead to right our wrong. If you have something in your home that you know should be returned to the owner, return it to the owner. If you have something that maybe you know you should have been charged for, but you weren't, perhaps you could go back and pay for it. Maybe you've stolen something that can't actually be returned or paid for, and it's an apology that is due, and perhaps an asking of forgiveness. Look, our salvation is not dependent on the things that we do, but the things that we do are often reflections of our salvation. In 1952, there was a guy named Al Johnson. He was from Kansas, and he had this radical encounter with Jesus and gave his life to him. And the story is told by Al Johnson that this one time he was in prayer, and he was so convicted by God that he felt like he needed to go and confess to the part that he played in a bank robbery four years earlier when he was 19 years old. So Al Johnson turns up to his own church, his local church, and I don't know how he swindled this, but there he was up at the pulpit and he confessed it to anyone. Anyone want to come and share their confessions? The statutes of limitation on the case, that's just fancy to say, the ability to charge him for the case had passed, and so they couldn't actually charge Al Johnson for what he had done. But he, he describes it this way. He says, My relationship with Christ compelled me to give a confession and then he voluntarily paid back his portion of the money that was stolen. And James in the Bible says, it's not our works that save you, but what sort of faith would we have if it didn't lead us to good works? And so Zacchaeus decided that he was going to make a commitment to pay back those he had stolen from, and it came with a commitment to see it through. Not just a decision, but a commitment to see it through as well. Keys, you can join me. Now, I realize that this is quite a confronting challenge. And for some people in the room, it may make you feel a little uncomfortable, but that's okay. Look, the challenge is for me too. Is there a way that I can right my wrong? Because nobody is expecting us to have lived a perfect life. But let's be a people that would own our mistakes and pursue justice. Because not only does returning the item or going back to pay for something or doing whatever you need to do to make it right 
return to the person what is rightfully theirs, it actually will lift a weight off your shoulders. It'll give you a lightness for your journey. I love what Mark Twain said. He says, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Shemaine touched on that brilliantly last week when she spoke about often when we tell a lie, we have to tell another one to dig ourselves out of that one and then a bigger one to dig ourselves out of that one. And you've got to sort of remember the path that you're taking. If we simply just tell the truth, then at any point we're asked something, at any point we need to present something, we just tell it as it is. We don't need to remember some crazy path that we've gone on to get ourselves out of something, but we live a life of honesty. Ephesians 4.28, this is my favorite today. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Thank you, Lord. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work and then give generously to others in need. We make it right. And the second thing we need to do in order to move forward, because we've got to make it right with the people that we've wronged, but also we need to make it right before God. And the second thing here is to repent. Zacchaeus' response was one of repentance. That sounds like this big, fancy, like religious word, but to repent is one of the most significant actions that a Christian could take. And I say action on purpose because we can't cut it short at a decision. It's not just about feeling sorry. The word repent is the original word metanoa, which means to express a fundamental change in thinking that leads to a fundamental change in behavior or way of living. It means to literally stop, feel remorseful, turn around and go in the opposite direction. Repentance itself is just the moment of remorse. It's that moment of surrender before God to say, God, I've sinned against people and therefore I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. I ask for forgiveness. I don't want to live that life. That's the moment of repentance. But the transformed life that comes afterwards, which is so important, we would call the fruit of repentance. Repentance, therefore, can't just be being sorry for what we've done. It's like, hey, sorry, you're just sorry you got caught. It's actually about making a change. It means to surrender our heart to God in a way where we ask Him to transform us that we wouldn't go down that path again. Acts 3, 19 to 20 says, Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. And Proverbs 28, 13 says, People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. And may mentioned last week as well, mercy is when God withholds from us what we deserve. We deserve punishment. We deserve judgment every time we turn our back on God's way of living. And yet in His mercy, He holds that back from us. The Ten Commandments come from a firm, righteous, and powerful God who has every expectation that we would follow every single one of these. And at the same time, the Ten Commandments come from a God who is gracious, compassionate, and merciful, who has grace for us when we don't. I'm going to read John 10, 10 one more time. The thief's purpose is to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I'm so thankful that the God that we serve is gracious enough to not make it confusing for us. He says, if you live in this way, you will live the life you've been designed to live, you will represent me well, you'll make a difference in this world, and you'll help to build a beautiful society and community around you.